Welcome to the Pendulum Land Podcast. Our podcast is designed for people interested in the right-of-way industry, eminent domain, the Uniform Relocation Act, or anyone who just enjoys spirited discussion of popular culture. Today's podcast is sponsored by Pendulum Land Services, a full-service right-of-way acquisition firm managed by industry experts who are dedicated to the integrity of the right-of-way process. Visit them at PendulumLand.com. With us today is our regular crew, Kristen Bennett from the great state of Texas. Hey, brah. Hey, brah. And Ross Green, an eminent domain attorney from the Commonwealth of Virginia. Hey, brah. I view this as derivative. And I'm Dave Arnold, your host and authority on the best music and movies released between the years of 1975 and 1995 and sometimes beyond. Let's get to it today. Today we have a special guest on the Pendulum Land podcast. We have Charlie Nobles joining us from California. Hey, bra. Hey, how are you doing, guys? Great to have you on, Charlie. For those of you who don't know, Charlie is the relatively new chief executive officer of the International Right-of-Way Association. I think he's held that job for several months and has done a great job of getting himself into a tough position and get the organization out of a tough position as he navigates the COVID. The International Right-of-Way Association is a professional member organization comprised of global infrastructure and real estate practitioners, and Charlie is our leader. And as many of our listeners know, Ross, Kristen, and I have been long-term members of the International Right-of-Way Association. So, Charlie, you're sitting out in California right now, and um, I think you've spent many years in California, which then begs the question, what is your favorite episode of the Californians from Saturday Night Live? You know, I got to tell you, I I'm not up to speed on uh, the the newer Saturday Night Lives. I'm kind of an old Saturday Night Live guy that, uh, that likes the old. What are you talking about, Charlie? <laughs> I what? know. I'm gonna have to. I'll. I'm, that's on my list for the weekend to get caught up on. And uh, I absolutely have to see it by, by virtue of being in the state, right? You must. And then I'm going to need to hear your review. I think it's an acquired taste. <laughs> you, can just, you can just go to YouTube and, and put it in at any point, and you'll be like, yeah, this is exactly what it's like to live in Southern California. Probably. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure. Now, Charlie, you did your undergraduate studies at, at Stanford, right? And were you majored in physics? I did. I, I majored in geophysics. And, uh, you know, coming from Texas, my dad's advice was, you know, you should work in the oil and gas industry. Don't don't go into engineering. Uh, You know, you need to work in the oil and gas industry. And, you know, it goes to show how that uh, each generation has its own bias that they they have. You know, we would probably tell all our kids, you got to go work in technology. And then probably by the time they're out of college, it'll be biotech. Right. So it's yeah, I studied physics and uh, then did absolutely nothing with my physics degree. I can relate to that. <laughs> I have some degrees I don't really quote unquote use. Hey, and then you are you are you a born and bred Texas guy? Did you grow up in Texas? Yeah, I grew up in uh, Amarillo, Texas. You have and... got to be kidding me. I grew up in Abilene. No. Oh, wow. So yeah, I went to um, and you'll get a laugh out of this. I went to a National Science Foundation mathematics camp. Now, that sounds like an oxymoron if you've ever heard one, right? But it was in Abilene at Hardin-Simmons University. My parents' alma mater, by the way. Oh, wow. Yeah. Interesting. So, Ch- so Charlie, um, you, you, you then got your MBA at UT Austin. So you've got a degree from Stanford and you've got a degree from UT Austin. How come you didn't go to any good schools? 
boy. Well, uh, you know, <laughs> I, I do my best. You know, my, my older sister went to Harvard. Oh, boy. And, uh, but I, I went to the East Coast to her graduation, and it was cold. And, well, I just I didn't kind of like the look of the whole East Coast deal, so I didn't even apply to any schools on the East Coast. It's a it's a it's definitely a different culture out here um, in, in the university setting. It really is, and and the the East Coast snobbery is a real thing. You and just demonstrated it, sir. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, Stanford and UT Austin are fantastic schools, and then I meet a guy who's got a degree from both of those. Charlie, one thing we all want to know: we were talking about this. We understand that you've met Anthony Hopkins before. And we want to hear about that. And did you enjoy a nice plate of liver with some fava beans? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you a little bit about that. Uh, my wife and I, uh, uh, first, our first place after we got married, we lived in Pacific Palisades. We rented a little place there. And I would go to, uh, they had a little village there. It's now been torn down. Of course, uh, one of the developers has come in and done it all up. Uh, and it's lost its charm. But we went to a little restaurant called Terry's and I would go there for breakfast in the morning and I'd take my dog over there, have breakfast, then go on to work. And, um, about a week after I'd been going there, a gentleman that I recognized from, from film would, uh, walk up, sit by himself. It was Anthony Hopkins. And, um, I would just nod my head and say, hi, I didn't want to bother him and be a, you know, uh, celebrity follower that uh, came up and, you know, started asking him autograph and all that kind of stuff. That's not the way I am anyway, but I would recognize him. He would recognize me and he'd say hi to my dog and so forth. So jump ahead years later and my wife and I are on vacation in Maui and uh, we loved Anthony, Anthony Hopkins films, of course, uh, Silence of the Lambs and Hannibal, some of our favorite movies. And we saw an art exhibit at this uh, place in Maui, because they have several art places in the tourist areas, and some have, you know, kind of poppy art, and some have more serious stuff. And we saw that it was an art exhibit featuring Anthony Hopkins, and we said, of course, oh, we have to go see this. You know, loving him from the film, and and both having met him in the Palisades, we go in there, and he has this wonderful, interesting artwork. We end up buying one of the paintings. So. Year later, we get a call saying, you know, all the people that have bought paintings are uh, being asked to come to a special exhibit we're having on New Year's Eve for Mr. Hopkins, and you'll get to meet him. And we said, well, we'll absolutely go. So we went out there a couple years ago to that and bought a second painting. And by virtue of buying a second painting, we were invited to a small dinner with Anthony Hopkins, uh, his wife and some friends and that was a really cool deal uh both to get the painting and to get to to meet him and say hello is extremely kind and humble unlike uh many of the celebrities out here so that's how we got to know anthony hopkins wow and he didn't and we, he didn't serve and, up any strange culinary delights at that dinner did he he didn't cook thank goodness oh. but he did recite the line when we told him we were fans of the movie which was fun Awesome. Oh, that's great. <gasps> yeah, so uh, so a neat deal, and we got to celebrate his birthday with him, which was really fun. Wow, and he's a pretty good painter, I, I guess. 
he is. What the painting will be worth in 20 years, who knows? You know, I'm no art expert, but we, we love the painting. And, you know, we're not uh, art collectors per se, but it was just a fun deal to, to have one of his pieces because we're fond of him personally. And he, he is rare in the celebrity world being down to earth and humble, unlike many that I could tell stories about. Oh, we'll save that for another podcast. That sounds fun. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so, Charlie, we want to talk a little bit about the International Right-of-Way Association. Of course, the four of us on this call are very familiar with it, but we'd like to hear from you as to what you see as the benefits of the IRWA to the right-of-way industry. Like, what does this organization hold out as a benefit to its members and the industry at, as a, at large? Well, what it does that I think is so valuable is it takes the whole right-of-way practice area to a higher level by having so many educational courses and establishing some standards of education. And it also provides a great networking ability and sense of community with the the right-of-way group. And it's really great to have an authority that authors courses and have and can provide peer reviews have so many knowledgeable people weigh in because people have different opinions about a lot of these subject areas and to get a group of people to sort of fight it out and come up with what's best practices and so forth that makes it way into the courses you're able to benefit from some very diverse sets of uh, professional backgrounds and experiences and so forth and come up with something that really uh is beneficial for for everyone, whether they're new to the field or experienced. The the IRWA has an international conference each year, which is hosted by a different city, and we weren't able to hold our conference this past June, which was scheduled for Minneapolis uh, because of the COVID, and it was canceled relatively early in the year. And next year's conference is scheduled for San Antonio. And Charlie, and I know you don't have a silver ball, but Um, Given the importance of networking within the IRWA, what do you think are the odds of of having that conference next year? Well, I know that everyone on staff and, of course, everyone connected with putting together the conference was so disappointed that we didn't get to have it this year. But it just there's just no way that we we knew there was pretty much no way that it was going to be allowed to happen. And then, you know, there was a risk of, you know, it's a substantial investment for the association, hundreds of thousands of dollars in the venue and speakers and, and all the arrangements. And to spend that money and then not have people have the ability even to show up is just a risk that we couldn't take. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we had to cancel it. I'm, I'm very hopeful that we'll be able to find there's not the risk that we had this year of having it. In other words, even if they don't come up with the COVID vaccine and some of that, I think there's going to be a way to do it in person that that's going to allow it to happen. So I'm, I'm optimistic that we're going to make it happen. I, I really, really hope we, we will. And I, I think there's enough time between now and then that, you know, there's all sorts of things that could, you know, help us get past this tough time we're in now with COVID. So I'm just, I'm trying to be very optimistic. I am too. And I, I sure hope we get to do it. You know, I've been going to that conference for, seven or eight years now and I just it was so bizarre to have a summer that wasn't kicked off by going to conference it really messed up my awful. summer <laughs> so I hope and we I get to all that, go to San Antonio I heard that sentiment you know of course I'm new to this but I heard that uh so many people they were just kind of 
stunned and in disbelief that they wouldn't have that as kind of an anchor point for their summer. Yeah, and, and the thing about it is you, you've touched on um, the benefits of networking in the IRWA, and that conference has so many wonderful educational segments to it. There's dozens and dozens of, of presentations brought to you by experts from all over the country. And sometimes, I mean, um, from people overseas do wonderful presentations at the conference. So everybody's got their fingers crossed that we're going to be able to crank it up again next year. And I know you do too, Charlie. Absolutely. You know, it's weird, Charlie. I feel like I know you very well because we've been involved in a lot of the education stuff through the association and been on a lot of calls and I've never met you in person. That's just kind of messed up. That's true. I know. Well, it's so strange. I mean, of course, I was on the job barely three weeks when COVID hit. And I remember having the conversation with the IEC that, you know, I'm getting ready to meet with the staff and tell them they have to work from home. And there was a couple on the IEC said, well, let's not jump the gun with all that. And I said, well, things the way things are uh, unfolding out here in California versus maybe where they are in different parts of the country where some of the IEC were, I said, this thing's happening really quickly. And my my intuition, at least on this one, was right because. We met with the employees. We got them the stuff they needed to work from home. And the day after, the first day after we sent them home to work, the governor declared that all the businesses would be shut down. So there was no choice, but we had just enough time to kind of at least get a, get our feet under us before that whole thing happened. But it's, yeah, it's it's been so strange because I went to, I think, two trips, one an IGC meeting and one the uh, foundation uh, a foundation trustees meeting, and that, that's the only group of people I've had the opportunity to meet. That's wild. What a weird time to take over a new position as a CEO. Yeah, you w- just jumped right into the fire. When, when did you when did you actually start as CEO of the IRWA? I believe it was something like February 26 of this year. Oh, moments before the COVID <laughs> oh, hit. You know, maybe you know yeah. what though, Charlie. Maybe we did meet in Abilene. I was a math counts mathlete. Um, <laughs> you did go to math camp in Abilene, so maybe. Maybe we met in Abilene at a math mathlete cool super well, cool function. What, no what nerds. What I remember from Abilene is that at Hardin Simmons we had to go over to Abilene Christian to dance because I think Hardin Simmons didn't allow dancing. On yes, camp. the Hardin Simmons right is that? the Hardin Simmons are the Baptists, and Wait. then ACU is the Church of Christ. I do believe that you can dance at ACU, but you cannot dance at Hardin Simmons. Th- this sounds like a Footloose reference, and you know we yeah. frequently <laughs> discuss dance movies on the podcast, and and that was what right. Footloose was all about. That's there you go. They just want to dance. Well, they just want to dance. Disco was just coming in about that time. I'm I'm very much dating myself, but it was an interesting time. Well, let's talk about that. How do you feel about disco? I I think that Saturday Night Fever is one of the greatest albums that was ever pressed, and Kristen Bennett uh, and Ross Green seem to think it was just um, a terror at the music industry. How do you even know? You weren't born. I've heard it. I think you have. (laughs) I have ears. (laughs) Yeah, you have to. It it depends on your attitude going into it. I mean, back then, I held a party line that that all disco albums should be burned. But in my later Attaboy. years, I've come to appreciate the, uh, the musical contribution uh, of disco and, you know, the cultural contribution, uh, mm. you know, back then that I think went below the radar. Right. So, so Charlie, do you have any polyester pantsuits left over from the 1970s? I never bought one. I don't know if it was my own choice or my mother wouldn't let me buy something <laughs> horrible like that. But. I don't believe that. I don't believe. I think yeah, that's what that, people say in you know 
they, they, that's their claim later in life. But uh, my understanding well, was the that... Problem, that Dave, the problem with those is they're very flammable. And when you grow up in the generation when everybody was smoking, it's just not a good thing to wear. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, um, I, I was fairly young um, for that part of the 1970s, but did own Saturday Night Fever and then subsequently bought the Bee Gees' next album, which had their number one hit, Tragedy, on it, and Ross Green's Absolutely rolling his named. eyes at me Absolutely right now. Absolutely named. But I, 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 Charlie, do you still have those albums? And don't say you didn't, you didn't own them back then because everybody did. I didn't, I didn't <laughs> own them back then, but I, I will admit to having downloaded uh, you know, you some go. of those songs on my, my iPhone. And my, uh, my daughter, at least in, uh, when she was a little bit younger, loved to dance along with them in the car. So that was, uh, that was fun. There you go. There you go. So as as the newest CEO of the International Right of Way Association, you have you've got a lot of um, you've got a lot of experience at the sea level uh, in your in your um, career. And you don't have a lot of experience with the right of way industry, as I understand, which that's probably a good thing because you bring in fresh ideas. Tell us a little bit about your vision from for the association going forward. Well, um, when I read about the position, the thing that struck me is the challenges that, at least in the job description, were so similar to ones that I faced at the old association that I ran for 15 years, the American Sailing Association. When I came in there, their education, you, you think, well, sailing a boat is sailing a boat. It hadn't substantially changed, but the, the, the books were out of date, the writing could have been improved, the illustrations, the whole feel of the association didn't make the members as proud as they should be to be at that association. And I wanted to elevate the quality of the education and thereby the the whole brand of the association. And that's something that I have a real passion for, for this job is, and I'm not implying that the courses now are not, there's not some incredibly good stuff. But there's always room for improvement, and I think there's specific things that I've heard people mention that they would like to see improved in the courses and things updated and so forth. And I think the presentation always has has room to to be improved. And so I think as people see that and the students say, wow, this is is great stuff, it elevates the whole excitement within the organization and the brand as well. And so that's one of the things that I'm looking most forward to doing. And I think there's there's always room for innovation um, at, at any number of levels with technology. One of the things we're looking at now, for example, is using a software that I used at the old association called Zendesk to improve customer service. And essentially, it's a tracking email tracking and system for any inbound uh, inquiries of the organization that assigns them to, to people and gives them you know personal responsibility. And all that stuff that will improve what the experience for the members out there um, is. Yeah. And that's the stuff that is fun for me is when you can make a tangible improvement and then you hear back from people, boy, this is great. We're so pleased you did this. The, the newest course looks great. That's the stuff that makes a job fun for me. And, you know, we've heard a lot of that, uh, a lot of good feedback about what's happening with education right now. I know that you and, and some of your some of the people that work at headquarters have put in a tremendous amount of work to kind of bridge the gap with our in-person education courses and then going to COVID where nobody can go sit in a classroom with 20 or 30 people. And um, you, you have 
worked with, I know Tim and Amir to put together a, a virtual education program that's really top notch. And I've heard I've heard great great responses to that and it's very innovative and I know that it wasn't something that you planned on doing on a certain date it was like we got to do this now because we have a, an emergency and I think I think that's been a great program and perfectly aligns with your vision well thank you and that that's a great example of where we all came in with the different skills needed to get that done I mean the education department has some tremendous talent in there and and also our field representatives, uh, Tim on the field side, Amir on the education side. And they basically needed someone to just get out there and sort of block and get all the impediments out of the way so they could go do their job. And so when we saw that there was an opportunity with COVID to look at things as, you know, half full versus half empty. In other words, this is the opportunity we've been waiting for potentially to have the schools say, well, you know, uh, not the schools, but the, the chapters and the instructors say, yeah, you know, we're going to need to make some changes. We're willing to, to, to give headquarters or, or give these guys the opportunity to try something different. And I said, we've got, we've got the ability right now to try something different and have people give us the leeway to, to make it work. And so I saw that as a really great opportunity for us to try the virtual education and so we went out there, we researched, we found a software that would make that better. And then the thing I think that I added to the process is help the guys on the team understand the importance of breaking down the barriers. In other words, the instructors saying, well, I've never really caught, taught a course virtually. I'm not sure how to handle the, the technology or I'm a little nervous about being in front of a camera, all that stuff. And I said, you got to provide ample training, send out the emails, do a lot of hand-holding, do a lot of demos, really practice and get it down so that you can get people willing to give it a try. And I think once they do and they have a positive experience, the word will get out, they'll let other instructors know. And that was my, my thing that I, I did on my end is help them understand the structure that they needed to follow mm -hmm. to get the course and the hard work that they were doing so that it would be accepted. Yeah, and, and it was amazingly well-received, I thought, Charlie. And Ross, Kristen, and I are all CLIMB certified instructors with the IRWA and very familiar with teaching in-person courses. And I can say personally that I have absolutely no desire, and probably it's not my skill set to teach a course virtually, although it is, it is in other people's uh, wheelhouse, just not mine. But having said that, I've had the opportunity to take a couple of virtual courses and had a great experience, one of which was an engineering course, 901, which is just basic um, right-of-way engineering, and uh, it was a great experience. I learned a lot. There was, nothing, there was nothing that I thought experiencing that course virtually uh, took away from the learning process. It was really, really well handled. And I know you were behind, you and Tim Drennan and Amir Vafamanish, we're all behind rolling this out so quickly and making it such a quality product in a short period of time. Indeed. I've got an interesting challenge for you. Um, Uh-oh. Here on the Pendulum Podcast, we like to play a little game called Over Under Push. And that's where I'm going to give you three things, and you have to declare them to be either underrated, overrated, or it can be a push. It's just appropriately rated. And we've okay. decided. All right. And then and then we will tell you whether you're right or wrong. Yeah, we'll, we'll let you know if you got it right or not. So okay. your over-under push is California-themed today. Your three items are Napa Valley, 
the the Pacific Coast Highway and San Francisco. San Francisco. So you got Napa Valley, the Pacific Coast Highway, and San Francisco. And by the way, you don't have to give an over and under and a push. They can all be over. They can all be under. However you feel. Okay. All right. I will say uh, Napa Valley is a push. Okay. Fair. Uh, and I'll say that uh, Pacific Coast Highway. I'll say under. And I can qualify that if if, uh, if that's allowed. That's re- it's required actually. Yeah, okay. but but just to let uh, you know, you're two for two so far. So you're doing great. Please give us your qualification. Okay, and San Francisco over. <laughs> Fabulous job. Nice, nice, nice. Perfect. Well, I, I think um, um, we all it's unanimous that we agree that you did get these correct on your your first yeah. round of over under push. You're three for three. Oh, cool! C- congratulations, well and now we're going to throw another one at you, and and it's because okay. you're calling us from Southern California, and because you are this is right in your generation. So, and there is a right and a wrong answer to this, and you're no doubt familiar with the band Van Halen. So, who oh, was yeah. who was the better lead singer, Diamond Dave oh, or Sammy Hagar? And there is only one right answer. Oh, it's got to be Dave. I mean, you know, they, they, I, I would go so far as to say Van Halen wouldn't be on the map to anywhere near the extent they are now with that. You know, his, you, you, there's things to love and hate uh, about David Lee Roth. But, oh, yeah. I mean, you know, he, he brought a, a unique character to that band that, that you, you really can't uh, compare to a lot else. He, he did, and I, I read a great book. Um, called Van Halen Rising. It was kind of a biography of the band's rise to fame. And a lot of those books can be kind of cheesy, but this is really well-researched and really well-written. And what I didn't know is that David Lee Roth was actually a knockoff of another lesser-known singer at the time called, like, uh, Arcana Dandy Jim or something like that. I can look it up. And I looked for a picture of the guy, and he looked just like David Lee Roth. He, he, He stole his persona from another dude and then made it something even more famous. And, by the way, Eddie Van Halen did the exact same thing. Eddie Van Van Halen starts playing two hands on the neck of the guitar, and everybody's thinking, oh, my God, this is never – well, yeah, he had actually ripped that off from somebody else. So those guys are a master of taking – hacks. (laughs) Wow. If you want to call them – yeah, okay. Kind of like the happy happy birthday song. I mean, who who would know that the happy birthday song – who from our generation would know that that was a – uh, a ripoff of Good Morning to You. That was the original song. Really? Did you just yep. make that There's up? There's a song. No, no. <laughs> I, I believe I believe, uh, I believe. you'll find that. See, I worked in the music publishing industry when I worked in the record industry briefly, and so I know a little bit about the, the song copyrights and stuff, but that's the, the most lucrative song in music publishing history, the Happy Birthday song, and often – They'll come in on a movie, and right after they blow out the candles, so you don't have to hear them say you sing "Happy Birthday" because they don't want to pay for the licensing rights. The "Happy Birthday" song. See? That's that's not in the public domain yet. Uh, it was a. This is another interesting aside. It was about to be, and I think uh, Warner Brothers was the owner of the song at the time, and they pushed to change the copyright law to extend it so that it wouldn't fall into public domain. Wow. So so what you're saying is we can never sing happy birthday to anybody on this podcast. Don't even think about it. Or we'll have to pay ASCAP or something like that. Well, uh, if the podcast is going out there, you might have them knocking at your door. They're very uh, 
they're very diligent about coming after people. Now, if you sing it in your own home, I think that would be allowed. But, uh, you know, you have to be careful about, especially the big songs, they'll, they'll come knocking at your door. And that's what's great about owning music publishing rights is that you don't even have to do anything. Somebody else goes out there, polices the whole deal and just sends you the check. That's why all the big fortunes were made in music publishing, not in, in other words, the people that wrote the songs, not the people that performed the songs really made the big money in music. Well, and that is why our intro music to this podcast is not a song you've heard before. Yeah, we actually had to we we purchased the rights to that song, but but we were we were we had talked about it and we did research on, you know, there's this. I think it's actually a myth that says you can use up to 30 seconds of a song and not violate any copyright um, or not have any copyright infringement, and that is not true. And what we no. really wanted to do for this episode was steal the intro to the Californians from Saturday Night Live, but I was too big a chicken to do that. And I had actually thought, you know, I'm a lawyer, so I'll use whatever I want. And then when I get a cease and desist letter, then I'll take it down. But then I learned that Spotify, who is the company that owns our uh, podcast hosting site, is very, very stringent on enforcing these uh, copyright rules. And they'll scrape your stuff. Like, I guess they've got software crawling all over it. And they'll, they'll scrape the music or scrape your episode right out. And so we've been very careful not to use any music. And we, now we won't even hum along now that, now that we've um, covered this territory. <laughs> well, I think, I think the humming, see, I think that the, the, the stuff that has to be, that's where artificial intelligence isn't yet, is that the ability to identify something from the humming, but they could definitely pick it up if you use the, uh, you know, the actual deal. But uh, it, it's, it's a whole interesting thing. But, you know, uh, one little aside that the listeners might find interesting is that many bands – the breakups and so forth and the problems, the infighting came about because some of the band members wrote the songs and the others did not and just performed them. And the people that performed them, you know, it's like getting blood from a stone to get the record company to pay much money with those contracts, those 30 page contracts they have. But the people that wrote the songs like, you know, with the Go-Go's when I worked at IRS records, uh, two or three of the girls and they were girls at the time, wrote the songs and were getting big checks and the others didn't. Mm -hmm. And suddenly, you know, two or three of them are making all this money and the others aren't. And the infighting starts, you know. Right. Right. And and funny you should mention the Go-Go's and IRS Records. I understand that IRS Records is also the company that broke one of my favorite bands of all times until they called it quits about 10 years ago. And that's R.E.M. Absolutely. That was that was IRS Records' biggest find. Jay Boberg, uh, you know, was told he had to go take a look at him when he was, I think, down in New Orleans. Uh, a friend said, you got to go check out this band, and he did. And one thing led to another, and they signed him. And then R.E.M. started getting so big that, of course, another label came in and, and pulled him away from the smaller label. But yeah. um, that's that was the biggest band by far. Uh, the R.E.M., the Go-Go's, maybe... Uh, you know, Stan Ridgeway, Wall of Voodoo, you know, those were some of the biggest of the IRS bands. But uh, the, the REM, by, by a long shot, I mean, they were um, so, so talented as songwriters, too. The, the oh, lyrics gosh, of their yeah. songs are really brilliant. Yeah, Michael Stipe, um, I, it's, I listen to his lyrics and I think, what, gosh, what does that mean? Or what, what does this mean? And I think I read an interview, it's been since the late 80s or early 90s, where he says it doesn't mean anything. It just sounds good together. It just sounds good. He's been recording some stuff during the COVID. Um, I think I follow him on Twitter or something. And I will tell oh, you, to 
to check Michael Stipe out these days makes me feel He's a looker, isn't he? Isn't he a looker? Yeah. I'm like, when did you become an old man, and what does that say about us? Hmm. (laughs) Right. Hmm. Uh, I know. It's just kind of, you know, I'm just waiting for one of these bands to have the wheelchair tour, right? (laughs) Right. You would think. I mean, the Stones were going to tour this year before COVID, and I think they're pushing 80. Yeah, I mean, it's. They must have some kind of a regimen in the mornings or whenever it is that they can they can do it to keep in that kind of shape because I don't think that's just fortuitous that they look like you know they're able to stand up to all this. It's called drugs. It might be called drugs. <laughs> but yeah. when you when you're pushing eighty, everybody's taking drugs then, just not the kind you buy off the street. <laughs> they come from a pharmaceutical right. company. The drugs. The use of drugs stays and the type of drugs changes, right? Right. It just becomes legal, but equally as expensive. So actually, (laughs) Kristen Bennett and I um, share a love for a musician who broke about the same time as R.E.M., and that's Billy Squire. Are you familiar with him? Oh, boy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I remember Billy Squire. Don't you just love Billy Squire? We're trying to get him on the podcast. Dave, it's it's not going to happen. And also, Charlie, uh, I'm not a a Billy Squire Squire fan. What? What's Billy Squire up to these days? Probably headlining tours in Europe or something. You know what? I happen to know that he, I believe he lives in New York. And the reason I know this is because Dave Arnold has written him a letter asking us, asking if he will join us on this podcast. And that is a true story, folks. That actually happened. Uh, never heard that. Guess what, Charlie? It's time for another over-under push. Are you ready? Uh Uh-oh. All right. And in the spirit of of talking about California today a lot, this is California songs, and here are your here are your choices. You've got California okay. Dreaming, Hotel California, and Going Back to Cali. All right, so I'm going to say Going Back to Cali is probably underrated. Yes, correct. Okay, you are four yeah. for four so far. Okay. And let me just Hotel let me break California. in. Let me break in before you go on. Any song that has the lyrical verse. Bikini small, heels tall. She said she liked the ocean. I mean, that's just lyrical genius. Is that REM? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's my man LL. Okay, there you go. All right, sorry, Charlie, I interrupted you. No problem. Hotel California. I've I've always thought that song was overrated. I'm sorry. <laughs> yes, two for two. Well, now that now that's you're five, five for five. Five for five. Yeah. Correct. I okay. just. I mean, I think it's an interesting song, but the way people go on and on about it, and, and frankly, I don't even fully get the song. I mean, I just, I, I, I've never quite understood the popularity of that song, to be honest. But, uh, you know, when there's so many great songs out there to go crazy over Hotel California, I just, I, you know, I'm sorry, I just don't get it. California Dreaming, if you're talking about the original version of it, I think it's, it's an amazing underrated song. Wait, what's the uh, original version? And then there's two versions? It's not the Mamas and the Papas? Uh, the Mamas and the Papas. And it's been done, it's been covered by a lot of different oh, people. Oh, sure. Okay. I, maybe maybe it would be a push, but I, I yeah, I would I would maybe call it a push because I think it's I think the original version is just got the real feel of the old California that didn't you didn't have the traffic, you didn't have the crime. You didn't have overcrowding, and you capture that feeling of being somewhere else in the country where you've got a gray winter and wishing you're in California. I think it really captures that in an amazing way. And so I've, I've always been a fan of the original version of it. Charlie, for the first time in the history of the Pendulum podcast, you are six for six on Over Under Push. Wow. That's amazing. And, you know, wow. and, and you know what? I Since we have nowhere to go 
but down from here. I think this is the perfect note to wrap up on. So, okay, Charlie, we want to thank you for taking an hour out of your day to talk to us. Uh, it was a pleasure to have you have you on board. It was great to have your insight into things, and, and congratulations on your position with the IRWA, and best of luck getting us through this difficult period. Well, thank you very much, and I, I hope I was able to, to shed a little light on what's going on at uh, IRWA, and uh, you know, thank you guys for having me on the show. Thank you, Charlie, and thank you, everybody else, for joining us for the Pendulum Podcast. It's brought to you by Pendulum Land Services, LLC, a full-service right-of-way acquisition company dedicated to the integrity of the right-of-way industry. Visit them at PendulumLand.com or on Twitter at PendulumLand. The broadcast was produced by Right-of-Way Consults, LLC. You can reach out to your resident experts on Twitter at Kristen at Right-of-Way Ross, and at Right-of-Way Dave. See you, everybody. Bikini, small. Heels, tall.